Hi, listeners. It's Lila. One quick announcement before we start the show. We are preparing for our annual cultural predictions episode for the end of the year, which means that FT Magazine editor Matt Vela will be back on the show with me to talk through your cultural predictions for 2023. You may remember last year you wanted Beyonce to drop an album. You wanted the return of the flip phone. What do you want now? Let us know one thing that you either think will happen or you want to happen next year. I've put a link in our show notes, which will bring you to a place where you can easily record a voice note. So tap that link and make sure to get us something before this Wednesday, November 16th. We'll be playing some of your voice notes on the show. By the way, we loved your messages that challenged us to make a boring topic interesting. The first of those segments is coming in a few weeks. Last note, this episode contains a bit of adult language and themes in the second segment. You've been warned. Enjoy the show. There's only one restaurant in New York that's kept a four-star New York Times rating over 35 years. Maybe, maybe I'm here. I did a tour of it recently on a busy Tuesday morning just before lunchtime. It's called Le Bernardin. So tell me, is this how the restaurant looked when you first started? Is it very different, the kitchen? The kitchen is actually exactly the same, mm. except that we have changed the stove many, many times. Okay. That's I mean, Chef many, Eric Repair. He's showing me around their spacious kitchen. There are multiple fish stations because it's a fish restaurant. We have what we call Garmanger, which is dedicated to all the cold, cold appetizers, raw fish, marinated fish, and so on. In the back, a chef looks like he's ironing raw tuna into very thin carpaccio. He has a pounder in his hand, and he just pounded the fish, right. and he made it very thin, like a carpaccio, yeah. and then he's going to cut it uh, so the fish will have the same shape as the plate. Right. And then it will go in the, in the fridge, and then during the lunch, we will use it. Yeah. Eric has been running this place since 1995. By then, Le Bernardin had already established itself as one of the city's best restaurants. But it's under his leadership that it got a three-star Michelin rating, which it has maintained for 17 years. Le Bernardin is consistently one of the world's top 50 restaurants, and I wanted to talk to Eric about what it takes to run a restaurant that's not only very high-end, but also that's never had a bad spell. Consistency, first of all, is the most difficult yes. uh, thing to achieve for a restaurateur or a chef. But you want consistency because if you had a great experience last week, you want a great experience today mm -hmm. and next week if you come back, or in a month or in six months. So I think the restaurant that beat the trends yeah. are the restaurants that are focusing on quality, on consistency, mm -hmm. with an edge. The mm -hmm. edge doesn't have to be like downtown sexy edgy. <laughs> right. The edge means that you have a personality yeah. and it's something that is very unique that wants you to go back. Today, we bring you my full conversation with Eric Repair. This week, Le Bernardin is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Then we'll talk about comedy with my editors, Alec Russell and Horatia Harrod. I recently wrote a piece about how comedians in New York are grappling with the line between provocation and offense. And we get into it. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Le Bernardin is a kind of sanctuary. 
Just listen to the difference as we move from the kitchen to the dining room. Um, could I ask you to show me the dining room yes, a little so bit? Yes, so let's go I'm to the dining room. I'm curious about... Watch out, it's yes. because it's floors. Okay. So those doors are basically separating the dining room from the kitchen with the noise and everything else. Yes. And it has to be a big contrast in between the street, mm-hmm. which can be hectic, yeah. especially midtown in the in heart of uh, New York. During open hours, there would probably be people talking, probably laughing. But that sense of calm is definitely intentional. And you, you have to come here and you have to feel like, oh, yeah. I have arrived. I'm going to have a good time and the food and the wines and I'm here to have a special experience. When you walk into Le Bernardin, it feels sophisticated, but it doesn't feel unattainable or unwelcoming. Okay, lunch is $120 for a three-course tasting menu. But it isn't $350, which is kind of how much a tasting menu will run you at other three-star restaurants in town. It's one of the world's best places, but it doesn't feel entirely out of reach. We were shorted a little bit today. Yeah, can you check what it is? The other thing that stands out about it is that Eric is everywhere. What did you notice? We have some fish that... uh, The flesh looks a little bit uh, different than usually. Mm -hmm. It could be because the fish is spawning. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But we're going to check now. Okay. And no wonder. The restaurant is his pride and joy. Eric was only 28 when he became executive chef, and he hasn't left since. He's gotten way more famous. He's been on Top Chef. He's been on No Reservations with his friend Anthony Bourdain and so much more. But for him, Le Bernardin is it. Instead of franchising or building out a restaurant empire, he's focused in. And to create something lasting, he's constantly changing to keep up. Eric, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So when you were 26, you became a chef de cuisine at Le Bernardin. Yes. At 28, the owner and executive chef, Gilbert Lecoz, passed away unexpectedly. And you took over as executive chef. Yes. And you've been executive chef and co-partner of Le Bernardin ever since. This feels very unique to me. Um, and I'm curious what the restaurant was like when you joined. Sure. When I came to Le Bernardin in, uh, in 1991, actually, it was June 11, 7.40 a.m. because I look <laughs> at my watch and yeah. I was like, this is a special place here. And so I feel something special is going to happen. Mm. And we're very passionate about what we do, obviously, yeah. we gather the best seafood possible on the planet. Yeah. And I will say the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> and we have beautiful ingredients from local farmers. And then our style is based into French tradition with a lot of influence coming from all over the world. Yeah. Because as you know, New York is a melting pot mm-hmm. of different cultures. Yeah. So that's very inspiring. And then it's kind of, of a smart, natural fusion that comes into our cooking. Was it always like that? Like, is, is that something that's sort of maintained or was did it have sort of a different energy? So the Bernardin was always a seafood restaurant. Yes. They created a mini revolution in New York and in the U.S. because when they opened, the New York Times, for the first time in the history of the newspaper, gave four stars right away, mm. which never happens. Mm-hmm. And um, they got great articles and reviews all over the country because the style of cooking was 
very different. Mm -hmm. In the US, usually seafood restaurants were like a shack where you were frying a lot of fish or grilling. And it was good, but it was not at the level of Le Bernardin. So they, they really created that revolution. Mm -hmm. The cooking of Gilbert Lecoz, the chef, was very light. Mm -hmm. It was very different than what they were cooking in France. But it was very, very inspired by Brittany, the region where the chef was coming from. Right. Then when I came on board, we started to see some influence from the South because I was born in Antibes, mm -hmm. in the French Riviera. I had an Italian grandmother. I live part of my life in Andorra, which is a very small country between France and Spain. Yeah. Uh, so we started to see those influence coming. And then after uh, Gilbert Lecoz passed away, I started to really impose my style more and more. Mm -hmm. And then, again, being in New York and being exposed to all those cultures, I started to bring um, influences from all over the planet. Yeah. You were quite young when you took over. Did you feel young or no? <laughs> <laughs> what did it feel no, like? I feel, I feel young, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very young. And the beauty is that when you are that young, you don't know. You're very <laughs> naive. You have no fear. Mm -hmm. You don't care about anything. You just do your things and then uh, don't don't think too much. Do you have any memories from those early years of like things you wanted to try? Yes. I mean, I always want to try things. I mean, yeah. that has, hasn't changed even today. Yeah. But what was interesting was to bring my Mediterranean influence into that more French classic influence. Right. And then when I started to bring influences from Asia, I mean, today it doesn't look like it's a big deal. But at that time, it was like, wow, what is he doing? Right. And I went to Peru right away, I think, in the early 90s. I came back from Peru so inspired. Mm -hmm. And the ceviche culture and whatever I was finding in Peru, I brought it back to Le Bernardin. We were pioneers. Right. Without knowing. Right. Because nobody really knew much about ceviches and, and yeah. other preparation from Peru. Yeah. I was going to ask, just how Le Bernardin has changed over the years? Like, it's a broad question, but are there points that stand out in your memory where you made subtle changes that felt very significant? Yes. In 1986, when Le Bernardin opened, it was a very classic, beautiful dining room with paintings from 19th century that belong in museums, mm -hmm. that are actually back in museums now, <laughs> with heavy draperies, it was Interesting. very rich and what we could perceive as stuffy today. Yeah. But at the time was this type of restaurant in fine dining. Mm -hmm. Today, when you come to Le Bernardin, we changed the decor completely. In the early 90s and in the 80s, people were going to restaurants and you would speak like this. You, do, you wouldn't <laughs> raise your voice. Today, you have a lot of energy in a dining room. People are laughing. People are happy. The service was different too because uh, the French uh, culture doesn't allow the, I mean, didn't allow at the time the waiters to really interact into the experience of the table. Right. So French waiters were always very formal to show that they were disciplined mm -hmm. and serious about their jobs. And that was perceived as being cold and stuffy. So today our waiters, of course, read the mind of the client, but most of the people want to interact with our uh, staff in the dining room. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the cooking has changed. Our cooking and recipes change all the time. Mm -hmm. So Le Bernardin is evolving every day. And if we look at Le Bernardin in a year from now, we will see 
huge differences. Like the menu will have changed by 80%. I went to Liburnaden once for lunch, and the person I was meeting had to cancel last minute, so I ate alone. I had a skate with brown butter that was life-altering, and I spent most of an hour just looking around the restaurant. What struck me was that it felt very confident in itself. It wasn't crazy or showy or trying too hard. I felt it was extremely peaceful. It was sort of like decidedly not buzzy or cool. It was, I don't know, that was part of what I loved about it. We are not a trendy spot. Yeah. And as you know, New York has a lot of trends Mm -hmm. and a lot of trendy spots. And people go there because it's sexy, it's uh, exciting now. And it's very noisy and there's a lot of energy and we love it and suddenly we don't want and we move to the next (laughs) place. And as we all know, New York is a very intense city Mm -hmm. in the street, uh, at work, everywhere. It's always uh, a competition. It's it's high energy in a city, which is fantastic. I mean, it's it's not a complaint. I love love that. But when you come to Le Bernardin, you should feel like, wow, I'm disconnecting from the craziness of the streets. Right. And I'm here to splurge and I'm going to have a good time. Right. And now it's time to eat and to drink and to mm-hmm. be with my friends and, uh, again, have a special experience. Eric, I would love to uh, learn a little bit more about, like, the choices that you've made at La Bernadette and how they've given it the lifespan that, it, that it's had. I know that you have a personally have a reputation for calmness <laughs> that you meditate that you practice buddhism and you've spoken about making a choice to be a good leader but you've also said it hasn't always been that way and no. i'm wondering if you could tell me about that yes sure so i grew up in the kitchens at the very young age in the 80s and the culture at that time was very difficult we were verbally abused so being insulted all day long by our chefs, mm-hmm. physically abused. They were punching us in the, in the shoulders or kicking us in the butt. Wow. Uh, they were throwing plates at us. And that was the culture of the, at that time. It's, they were calling that the old school way of <laughs> running uh, restaurants and kitchens. So as a young chef, when I, when I came to America and, and was in the kitchens, I tried to emulate some of my mentors. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize that anger is not a strength. Anger is actually a big weakness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was miserable in my life. My team was miserable. All the talented people were leaving. Mm -hmm. And I had this kind of like moment. And I said, oh my God, I know why. I'm treating people so poorly. And I'm angry all the time. How can I be? I mean, nobody's happy to be angry. You cannot mix the both feelings, right? It's either way you're happy. Or you're angry. Right. But it doesn't work at the same time. (laughs) Your brain cannot process that. Mm -hmm. So I realized that and I was like, oh my God, this is a revelation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided that the day after I would change completely. Of course, it took more than one day. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I will work on my temper. I will work on um, all my mistakes. And I will make sure that in a restaurant, we have tremendous respect for the employees in between us with our employees, with our purveyors, with everybody who's interacting with us. And it took me some time to do so because I was training people under me to be abusive. So then I had to convince them that I was wrong. And they were looking at me and they were like, for six months, you trained me like that. And now you're telling me that uh, it's wrong. So anyway, we, we 
really changed the culture of the restaurant for the best. And that was in the early 90s. It's not something recent, of course. I asked Eric about the practical choices he's made to make the restaurant better. Because after all, we still hear about chefs assaulting their staff, verbally abusing their staff. He told me that a restaurant is a hostile environment. Hot fish, sharp knives. And you need to invest in enough staff and equipment to keep things calm, even at the busiest times. He said often new staff have to adjust to a gentler workplace culture when they get there. Why... Eric, do you put so much effort into that? Like, why does it matter to you? Because, you know, so many restaurant staff don't have health insurance, don't have paid vacation. I know it's different at Liberna Den partially because you're working with a higher price point. But I'm still curious, sort of, how do you run a good restaurant when the system we, is kind of against you? And uh, and why do you, why do you focus on that? I'm so? not sure if the system is against us. I think um, we create our own system. Okay. Every restaurant is different from another. And um, you could be very selfish and create a very good environment for one reason. You want to produce for your clients. Mm -hmm. So you could do that in a selfish way and it could work more or less. (laughs) But really at the end of the day, I mean, why not make people happy? Why not put efforts to work in an environment that is a positive environment? Why not? I'm happy when I see smiles from the employees or when I'm saying hello to them and they're saying hello to me and we talk a few minutes together. Or I'm happy when we have a good day. Uh, I don't think I could be happy making people miserable. It's not my personality. And I'm not the only one to do that, by the way. It's a lot of restaurateurs, a lot of chefs who are really trying hard to create something positive in their own company restaurant, uh, so the staff can can be happy. But you're right; it's it's like in a classroom. You have some bad students, <laughs> right, and those like- are the restaurants that and restaurateurs and, and and management that don't care about their employees. But I don't think it brings joy mm-hmm. to be mean. To, again, like we go back to the idea of being angry, yeah, or being happy. mean. Yeah, I don't see where you, where is the happiness there. Eric, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for um, listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> Eric is on TV a lot, and I've put some links to his shows and his books in the show notes. I've also linked to my personal favorite cooking class of his. It's a multi-part toaster oven series. He teaches you how to make amazing dinners in a toaster oven. I've been going to a lot of comedy shows lately. If you live in New York City, there's usually at least one within walking distance on any given night. You can see set-up punchline comedy, political comedy, deadpan, absurdist. Here is a confessional joke I heard back in July from the comedian Dylan Adler. I just kind of want to get a quick gauge of the room. Um, Who here is in therapy? Yes! I love to hear it. I'm in therapy. I love my therapist, but I feel like she still doesn't know that I am fundamentally evil. (laughs) You know, she's like, it's trauma. I'm like, I'm Jafar! Ha ha! Dylan is well-known in New York's alt-comedy scene, and a lot of his comedy is about his own identity. Also, he sings. This joke continues into a musical number called Why Am I Still Fucked Up. 
Why am I still fucked up? One time at a family gathering, I made a joke about the sexual chat between my twin brother and I, and it bombed. It was so awkward for my grandma. She survived Japanese internment. Why am I still fucked up? Dylan's an example of what a lot of New York comics are doing these days. They're drawing humor from personal experience, whether that be for Dylan being gay, in therapy, half Japanese, a survivor of sexual assault. On the other hand, you have comics that make jokes about others. Sometimes that's referred to as punching down. Most famously, big stars like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais have been in the news for making jokes about trans people and then defending their right to do so. And that's created a conflict. So I wrote a recent piece for FT Weekend magazine that explored how working comics in New York are thinking about the jokes they tell now. And today, I've invited my editors on to talk through it. Editor of FT Weekend, Alec Russell, and senior editor, Horatia Herod. Um, okay, so where should we start? I know where we start, Lila. Okay, tell me. We start walking uh, (laughs) on a sunny spring afternoon in New York. Yeah. uh, Where you and I first talked about this, didn't we? Mm Mm-hmm. And what was on my mind at that time was that Horatia and other colleagues and I had been noodling away at the subject of comedy for for some months, I think it's fair to say, Horatia. And... Mm. There have been endless columns written about about the subject of <laughs> of comedy, and most but most of them were sort of rather predictable. It was either someone saying, "Oh no, you can't be funny about anything these days," mm-hmm. uh, or it was somebody saying, "Oh no, that's totally rubbish. Cancel culture doesn't exist." And so there we were thinking about it, and and I remember thinking, "Well, why don't we actually get away from people shouting at each other about comedy?" And I thought, "Why don't you take a deep breath?" and head off and talk to comedians. Yeah. And you rather wonderfully, and slightly to my surprise, said yes. <laughs> to be honest, I had to think about it a little before I said yes, because I was taking on a topic that was basically a Venus flytrap of everything that makes people mad. Cancel culture, Dave Chappelle, wokeness, freedom of speech. But the fact that there's no easy answer makes it interesting. So I started going to tons of shows. So, but then, Lila, when I saw you in London a few months later, you were in the thick of it, and I think feeling <laughs> the, the this kind of sense that you've spoken of of the kind of immensity of this task. It's one of those situations where, like, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, uh, and then things start to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you start to realize, like okay, what makes comedy funny these days? What's okay to say? Where is the line? Like, it so depends because as I started looking in New York and started going to comedy in New York, I started realizing like there's so many types of comedy. And so I think the only way, what was helpful to hear from you was like, you can have a question that's like a big, complicated question and just have a few different people answer it differently. It doesn't have to be one, one answer. There is no answer. I totally sympathize with your worry about writing about comedy because a comedy piece, there's a kind of weird expectation that it, it is going to like be just rib achingly funny when actually what you're doing is tends to be when you write about comedy it's it's a little more serious than that that might imply right but you did speak to some great people who were theorists of comedy and there was one called I think Michelle Robinson who Mm -hmm. who kind of struck on an interesting point which was kind of about humor as identity 
Yeah, so I spoke with an academic named Michelle Robinson. She teaches American Studies at University of North Carolina, and she does this whole course with students about comedy and ethics. And she told me about this study of rape jokes from 2011 um, by a different academic named Delise Kramer. And basically, it argued that we use our taste in humor as like an identity marker. So we're self-categorizing with humor ideologies the way we do with political ones. So like, I'm the kind of person who thinks a rape joke or a trans joke is funny, or I'm not that kind of person. I think that it's offensive and you can't say it. And like, there's this kind of binary of like, do you have a sense of humor or not? (laughs) But that, you know, that that's like very simplistic, you know, like it depends on the joke. It depends on the context. It depends on who's telling the joke. Here's what bothered me about what I was seeing from star comedians. They've started to use getting canceled as a kind of easy protection to tell lazy or deliberately provocative jokes. Here's Ricky Gervais from his most recent Netflix special, Supernature. The worst thing you can say today, get you canceled on Twitter, death threats, whatever. The worst thing you can say today is women don't have penises, right? (laughs) Now, no one saw that coming. But it doesn't seem like these comics are actually being canceled or silenced. Their critics don't have that kind of power. Instead, they're generating headlines and getting more famous. Dave Chappelle's most recent, most controversial special was, according to him, the most popular special on Netflix ever. I guess I came out of this reporting thinking, like, we're kind of having the wrong conversation. It's not, is cancel culture threatening comedy? Because people aren't really getting canceled for what they say. It's like, is it good? You know, what makes something good? But all of these comedians are kind of thinking about these questions, aren't they? Where to draw that line? Or or are they not sometimes uh, just trying to push the line? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and seeing how far can I push this? I mean, if you're if you're a really famous comedian, you can kind of get away with thinking beyond the question where to draw the line and thinking, you know what? Let's see what these people will take, uh, right. which is slightly different and and sort of not such a good thing, is it? And there's a deliberate bit of provocation going on that is going beyond trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. It, it it's actually uh, just sort of just pushing things. Right. One example of what Alec is talking about is a comic that I started the piece with. His name is Aaron Berg. I saw him at The Stand, which is this sort of sceney comedy club in Manhattan. And here's a taste of the kind of comedy that he does. In this clip, he's pointing at a couple in the front row. Fucking love a good lesbian couple that doesn't look like a lesbian couple. It's awesome. Yeah, you do. But yeah, I get it. But you knew you were lesbian before she knew she was lesbian. Like, she probably still isn't sure. And you're just like, shut Shut up. You are, Jessica. You are. It was like all crowd work. And he just started making fun of people. And it was like so fast. And it was things like making fun of someone for looking gay, making fun of Asian people for looking Asian. Like there was no intellectual rigor. There was no like complexity to the jokes. It was just like bam, bam, bam. There was a little self-deprecation in there. It was like he was obviously saying things he wasn't supposed to say. And people were laughing. And the people he was making fun of were laughing. And um, I, you know, like there were times that I was like nervous with what he was saying. There were times where I was offended by what he was saying. And there were times I was laughing too. Um, 
I am not holier than thou. So I basically... Yeah, it's the last time you're writing for us, Lila. <laughs> <laughs> Cross the line. It's Cross over. Line. It's over. Um, but yeah, it was really confusing. And I started the piece with that because it was sort of like, what was that? <laughs> and like, how does that upend our questions about what makes something funny today? And if you're laughing, does that make it funny? Like, are we laughing because of shock? Are we laughing because it is funny? Anyway, and so Horatia said... You should talk to him. <laughs> so he agreed to talk. Uh, we got on the phone and he was ready to chat. You know, he said, like, are you calling to cancel me? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we got going. He said that he had tried for a long time to do the type of complex hour long special comedy that dealt with um, class and privilege and race and and sexuality and whatever, and that it wasn't really getting him anywhere. And so he just changed his strategy to really go for like clearing his head and just getting the guttural laugh, getting like the deepest laugh, the crying laugh that you can get out of somebody. And in whatever style of comedy he was trained in, that way that that happens is just to get on stage and be like, I need every 15 seconds, I need a laugh. And if I'm not getting that, then I failed. And so that means whatever blurts out has to be in service of that. And that can be as low or as dumb as it takes. But if you're doing it fast enough, and if you're sort of bringing people to the edge enough, they're more likely to laugh more. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting because I guess every comedian lives or dies by the response of the room that they're in. And mm -hmm. it really depends who's in that room. There was an interesting thing that George Carlin, a comedian, said. He suggested that stand-up comedy is more of a craft than an art, because his view was that art could be interpreted in many different ways by many different people. But as a comedian, the craft is you've got to get everyone in that room laughing at the same thing at the same time. You know, there is something that's to draw together a whole room of people to laugh at the same thing, you need to kind of press particular buttons. And, and each of your comedians had a different kind of crowd they were playing to. When I was talking to Aaron, that's exactly what he told me, too. That his obligation was to make people laugh, not to think through moral questions. As long as the room is laughing, he's doing his job. So I asked him, you know, when you're on stage, there's a natural power imbalance. It's not a dialogue. You're talking to people, not with them. So what if a parent leaves your set and your jokes give them permission to go, say, misgender their kids? It can be insidious. He said, okay, maybe there are a few sickos who hear my jokes as permission to do something awful. But that's rare. He didn't see the big deal. And one of the comics that I talked to, Madi Drummond, uh, had a really good point about this, which is basically like, if you're making fun of a community and they say that's not funny, they have the right to tell you where their line is. And it's your job as a comedian to figure out how to say something right so that you can, you can joke with people and not have them feel that you're against them. I mean, you know, I, the thing I found that, that I find interesting and difficult about all of this is, you know, it's very hard to be absolute about what is and isn't funny. Yeah. You know, if you've got a room full of people laughing at something that someone else finds very offensive, it's it's hard to say they're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> they're That's not funny. funny. Right. Yeah. You know, I actually came away feeling quite uplifted and Good. thinking all said and done, uh, comedy is in pretty good shape. There's obviously there's some uh, 
there is some offensive stuff out there that some of which will be better not aired. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but fundamentally, there are all sorts of people out there who are thinking about it, thinking about what the line is. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly all sorts of people out there who aren't being cancelled. So I felt <laughs> I felt kind of, uh, yeah, uplifted about the state of comedy. Thanks, Alec. I mean, and what I appreciated about it, too, was like, one, having the time. And two, was that like this sort of reassurance that like, these questions are not binary. You know, it's like very easy to just decide this is what I think (laughs) about a very complex, nuanced topic. And so like a story about it or reporting about it, it's okay if, if you leave it knowing more, but having less of a strong opinion. Actually, maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) Alec and Horatia, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for probably sitting through loads and loads of awful comedy on our (laughs) behalf. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next weekend on the podcast, we are learning how our brains respond to music with neuroscientist Susan Rogers. After that, we have our literary editors on, Fred Studeman and Laura Battle. They are coming to recommend their favorite fiction from 2022. If you want to keep in touch in other ways, you can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I will also be collecting your cultural recommendations from you this week on my Instagram. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented, hardworking team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with engineering help this week from Tommy Bazarian and original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.